Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Now reading is from chapter 1 of Jonah, verses 1 to 16. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell asleep into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you to Reese for the invitation and, and thank you for the opportunity to preach. I, I take it with, you know, prospective students, it all hangs or falls on this sermon. Um, so that's a slightly daunting thing. I am preaching on the Old Testament, so it would be apologies to the Old Testament faculty. Uh, I undoubtedly will make many mistakes in my sermon because, you know, keeping up with contemporary scholarship is virtually impossible. Uh, this is a sermon that was preached at St. Mark's Campbell on the first Sunday of 
February this year, and this is a little related set of Bible studies that I wrote, because I'm a great believer in producing Bible studies related to sermons. Uh, if you want to get a copy of that, you can later. Now, as you probably are aware, one of the phenomena of our age is that we have acute staff shortages in virtually every field, uh, including ministers, youth ministers, and children's and families ministers, because about 40 churches are trying to find a children's and families minister, uh, and they're all battling to find them. But these, these shortages are everywhere, aren't they? Nursing, doctors, uh, teachers, it goes on and on. And that's a very interesting and strange phenomena that most of us have never lived through before. Now, if you end up in any form of leadership, you will end up in this scenario. So you need someone on your staff, like Christchurch Hawthorne does and uh, GWAC, and you go through the necessary process to try and find someone. There are limited options, but you ultimately employ this person. You have great hopes and expectations for this person. You give them a very clear sense of direction when they start as to what they should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, and then you let them go. This person's not in a minor leadership role, they're in a senior leadership role in your church or organisation. Uh, and you have great hopes and expectations for this particular person. Uh, after a while, you discover they're not actually doing what you asked them to do, they're doing the complete opposite to what you asked them to do. And when you kind of have the conversation which you have to have about what's going on, they tell you that based on their previous experience, they've decided they're going to do X, not what you wanted them to do and what you, in fact, had employed them to do. Uh, and this is a very perplexing and challenging situation. And you're flabbergasted and you're unclear as to what you should do next. Well, uh, Jonah's a bit of a similar sort of story in, sen in that sense to what's kind of going on here. And I really like the introduction this morning because we are, in a sense, thinking about God's call uh, and we're thinking about what that might look like and for Jonah, it was a very obvious and clear-cut call, was it not? Uh, God makes it really explicit. You're to go to Nineveh and you're to preach to a community of pagans. It'd be great in all of our lives if the call of God was as explicit and as clear as that, wouldn't it? Uh, and it would be really good if it wasn't sort of as complicated as it sometimes can seem. Seem rather. So we all know the story of Jonah, don't we? The prophet who's sent by God to go to Nineveh he chooses to get it, go in the opposite direction. He gets into a boat. Uh, the boat ends up in a huge storm. The storm leads to Jonah being thrown into the sea. Uh, Jonah is then swallowed by the, in the belly of a beast, and in the belly of a beast, which was a large fish, he comes to his senses and comes back to sort of his relationship with God and sorts things out. He's spewed up on the sea. He does, in fact, go to Nineveh. Uh, he goes to Nineveh and preaches against his own great personal convictions, and we'll come back to that shortly. Uh, the people of Nineveh respond in an amazing way. He's unhappy about this response, and in chapter 4, he uh, sits under a tree, very miserable because he's not happy with the fact that the people have repented. Uh, we all know the story. It's an amazing story, and we're only getting the first little bit today. Well, it's a wacko story, and you have to ask yourself the question, what sort of prophet is Jonah, and why did this little book end up in the Bible, given that he's not a very great example of a prophet? because he seems to do the opposite of what God wants every time, not just sometimes. Now, you could argue that Jonah is almost like the anti-prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Uh, now, that's an incredibly conventional start, isn't it? It's like a spy movie where the spy, is, you know, the, the spy catcher is about given his secret instructions about what he's meant to do. God's direct word was to go to, to, to Jonah with his prophet. He's uh, go to Jonah. He's a prophet, and he's given his mission directions. 
Most of us, as I've said, would like to think it would be that clear cut for us. When I was about 23, I think, or 24, I can't remember, I had a summer which was incredibly perplexing. Uh, I led on a youth camp which was very successful and I'd led this youth camp for years. Uh, I went off to the CMS summer conference and the legendary John Stock did the Bible studies. Uh, at the end of the youth camp, I was really convicted I should go into youth ministry. After hearing John Stock for five days, I was convinced I should become an Anglican minister uh, and preach the word of God as John Stock did. Then I went off to a youth convention and they had this legendary missionary who inspired us all to think about cross-cultural missions. So at the end of the summer, I thought I was going to be a minister, a youth minister and a missionary. Uh, and it was, I went back to sort of school as a school teacher, totally perplexed uh, as to what I should do next. Now, obviously, ultimately, you know, it got sorted out uh, and I became uh, an Anglican minister. But uh, this is what's kind of going on here. Go to Nineveh, preach against it. Now, Nineveh was a notoriously evil city and they needed to hear a message uh, about God's judgment that was coming upon them. Nineveh was located in what you would call present-day Iraq. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it was notorious for the way in which it actually afflicted the people of the lands that they conquered in terms of the hideous things that they did to the people which they con conquered. Uh, I won't go into the gory details, but uh, I'm sure if you're studying Old Testament, you'll become aware of that. Now, to us, this might seem like a challenging but perfectly reasonable mission for Jonah the prophet. Why wouldn't God want someone to go to warn these people of Nineveh of the coming judgment so they had the chance and the opportunity to repent and to respond? After all, God loves all people. That's, now, it's easy for us to think this was a perfectly reasonable request for who live in leafy suburbs like Camberwell or other parts where you might live in a very nice city like Melbourne. But for someone like Jonah, this was a horrific request. Go to a Gentile city and preach against them. What were the chances of success? Uh, one would suspect minimal. Go and warn them to repent when they had been responsible for exacting such misery on his own people, the people of Israel, when they'd been conquered and reconquered at various points. Go and the most likely impact would be that you wouldn't come back because you yourself would be put to death would be the most likely prospect. So who was to go? Well, we're told it's Jonah, son of Amittai. No introduction is given, so presumably he was well known. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it tells us that he ministered during the reign of King Jeroboam II, and he was known for being loyal to the king and intensely patriotic. He was, in, he was regarded as being very nationalistic. So of all people, why send him as a nationalist to the king and the people, uh, to, to the enemies of the king and his people. Uh, again, it might seem easy for us to think sense that this mission was straightforward, but for him this was personally perplexing and complex. It's fascinating to reflect on this scenario at present when there's been a dramatic rise in Christian nationalism in the United States uh, and to a much lesser extent here in Australia. There are many issues that are proving intensely divisive for evangelical Christians in the US uh, and in other parts of the world, and one of them is the extent to which you align with right-wing nationalist leaders in pursuit of a specific moral goal, which in America is always in relation to abortion. The question of whom you, you are, we owe our loyalty is a very real one, God or the conservative cause. Uh, and as we know, in many places in America, people seem to have lost all perspective on that particular issue. Indeed, as someone tweeted on the weekend, who will replace Tim Keller as a voice of sanity in the midst of the chaos of contemporary evangelicalism? 
uh, in North America, but not exclusively in North America. Well, whatever way you look at it, this, his mission, this mission task is fraught with difficulty and one that would seem at odds with reality. So how could God ask Jonah to betray his national interests and his own personal inclinations and uh, predilections? Well, in one sense, what happens next isn't really surprising. Jonah does go, but he goes in the complete opposite direction. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, and he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the ferry, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He was meant to go to the center of the Assyrian Empire, and he goes in the complete opposite direction to a place called Tarshish, which was somewhere in southern Spain on the Atlantic coast, as far as the known world of its day. You couldn't flee any further <laughs> at that particular point in history. Uh, he, where, so what's going on here for Jonah? Well, seemingly in his mind, it would have been a dangerous and extremist and contrary to the will of God for him to, to obey God's direction, to go to a, people, a pagan people uh, and to preach to a people who'd been, uh, who'd caused, caused great harm to the people of God. Now, we have to ask, what sort of prophet is Jonah? But then again, what about us? We can often wonder about the wisdom of God in our lives and in our world. What does, why does God tolerate so much evil in our world? And why doesn't he intervene more? Why does he allow us to suffer and others to suffer? In fact, why did he allow Tim Keller to die? Is a question that I'm sure many people have pondered in recent days. If he really wants to save the world, why does he limit himself to the seemingly feeble efforts of us, his people? That's one of the great perplexities, isn't it? I mean, if you were God, would you really entrust your mission to people like us? But that's what he does. And at a time when the world is crying out for help, why is the church so often consumed with its own internal issues and conflicts? Because sadly, that is often the case. So what is the way forward? And when there are so many voices declaring that there is, this is the way to go if you're in church leadership, because one of the perplexities of church leadership these days is that every week there's another book, and another book saying this is the way to go, and you've only just sort of thought the last three books were pretty impressive, and at the end of the day, it gets very, very confusing. Well, one could go on and on. So Jonah runs away from God. And as Tim Keller puts out, points out in his book, The Prophet, Prodigal Prophet, because Tim Keller has a book on every verse in the Bible, uh, and one of the, I sometimes has dubbed him, I know it's not good to be speaking against Tim Keller at this moment, but um, as the preacher's non-friend, because his books are almost, almost so much better than your sermons. Uh, and you'll have parishioners who will tell you that at the door, because they've read all his books. Well, anyway, as he points out in the prodigal prophet, we see in Romans chapter 1 to 3 that there are two different ways to run away from God. In chapter 1 of Romans, he talks about uh, out-and-out pagans or unbelievers who either because of ignorance or outright rebellion have totally rejected God. And let's face it, there's a lot of that going on in wealthy Australia today, is it not? People who are very upfront about the fact that they've rejected God and they've, they've turned their back on him. And in fact, it strikes me these days, one of the recurring stories in our culture is not of people coming to faith, but it's a story of people who have given up the faith. Uh, and that's the narrative that we're actually speaking into in our particular context. By contrast, in Romans chapter 2, we read about people who are very religious and very good. They zealously follow God's laws and boast about their goodness. And they too live as if they don't need God because they have it all together. And again, there's a lot of that in our culture too, isn't there not? people boasting about their own goodness and their good deeds uh, and the actions that they're involved in. 
Well, Paul's conclusions in Romans, which you all know about, is shocking. All, not some have sinned, and all, not a few. Not just not a few have fallen short, and all are people in need of God's help. You can run away from God in rebellion and will, will, will for sin, but you can also do it by hiding by being religious and by seeming, be, being seemingly faithful. Neither God group thinks they need God. One because they think it's irrelevant and the other because they think that they're good enough in themselves and in their own actions. So Jonah chapter 1 is all about our various ways and efforts to run from God. Having got on the boat to run away from God, Jonah finds he's now encountering him directly. The Lord sends a great wind and so violent is the boat is that the boat threatens to break up. I've done a lot of sailing over the years, and if you're ever out on a flimsy little bit of fiberglass in the middle of the ocean when a massive storm breaks, uh, you will often have a moment when you'll wonder whether this is the end, uh, because it can be an incredibly freaky experience to be in the middle of the ocean on a small piece of fiberglass. The sailors cry out to their gods and seek to lighten the load by throwing the cargo overboard. And what does our hero do? Well, he goes down into the hold of the boat and goes to sleep. Uh, so the crisis is happening up on deck uh, while the sailors are attending to that and Jonah's down the boat, boat bow the, in the hold of the boat, sleeping. And eventually ca the captain goes to him and says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we, we will not perish. The pagan captain has to exhort the Jewish prophet of the Lord to pray. The sailors take charge and cast lots to discover who's responsible for the calamity and the lot falls on Jonah. They want to know all about him and where he comes from and what he does. And he answers them, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, understandably, the sailors are even more terrified and asking what he's done. And it says in the text, they already knew what he'd done because he'd already told them somehow uh, that he was running away from the Lord. They plead with him to tell them what they should do. And he directs them to throw, throw him into the sea and acknowledges that they are in this mess because of him. Uh, they don't want to do that, so they row furiously in the hope that they can sort of somehow get out of the situation, but, but eventually the storm grows even stronger. And they cry out to Jonah's God, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. So they hurl him into the sea, the storm suddenly abates, and they're greatly afraid and bow down and offer a sacrifice to the Lord and make vows to him. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Full to overflowing with ironies. The prophet who hears God's word and disobeys it. The prophet who runs from God. The prophet who doesn't want to preach to pagans in Nineveh because he's afraid he will die. The prophet who doesn't pray in the midst of the storm. The pagans who cry out to their gods the pagans who, will, who help him to confront his sin and his rebellion, the pagans who cry out to the Lord, the pagans who make sacrifices of thanks to the Lord, and the prophet who doesn't want to minister to pagans and yet indirectly enables a group of pagans to come to faith, uh, and the prophet who was afraid of dying in Nineveh, who was tossed into the sea, presumably to die, uh, except you all know what's going to happen next, but that's beside the point. It's a bizarre situation Jonah found himself in, and what a remarkable contrast in attitudes and actions. Now, we have said that this whole crazy chapter is about Jonah running from God. And if we're honest, we all do that as well, don't we? We don't like the implications of God's will in our lives, so we keep God at a safe distance. 
we have issues with a besetting sin in our lives and we don't want to deal with it, so we just kind of pretend it's not really a problem. We're upset with God because something we'd prayed about hasn't seemingly been answered yet, and we're kind of in a holding pattern with God because we really are in a holding pattern because of this issue that hasn't been resolved. We're angry with God and the church because we had hoped and prayed and trusted that our children would be following the Lord, but they are not. Now, as an aside, can I suggest that one of the reasons that many young adult children can sometimes seem, uh, who have wandered from the Christian faith, can sometimes seem quite hostile is because God hasn't given up on them. Uh, C.S. Lewis described the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven, uh, and God is still pursuing them, even if they've run from him. Uh, and some of the hostility is because they're kind of frustrated because they can't shake the way they've been brought up. Now, each of us in these and a range of other ways are ourselves running from God, and it's hard to be a Christian and hard to keep at it long term. While Jonah runs, God runs as well. And in his story, God is still at work in spite of Jonah because God doesn't give up on him. He's running in one direction and God's still pursuing him. Uh, God's got a mission that he wants to be fulfilled, and he somehow wants to use Jonah to be part of fulfilling that mission in spite of the absurdity of his actions. God has a bigger plan in place, even if at the end of it, this section, Jonah's in the deep blue sea. Now, in the final irony in chapter one, the sailors are saved by his death because the storm is calmed. And ironically, if Jonas, ironically, Jonah sacrifices himself so they can be saved. And even more surprisingly, it's the means of him facing God and getting turned around. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah, and I think that's more applicable to what happens next. But nevertheless, while, we, while, he is, while he is running from God, God is preparing a major sign which will be point to the greater sign of Jesus' own death and resurrection. For each of us, let's cling to the reality that God has done everything we need to enable us to love and follow him. And it was his sacrifice that enables us to be in the right and to be available to be used by him. If you're running from God, you can be assured that he hasn't turned his back on you. But in fact, like Jonah, he's pursuing you uh, because he wants you to come back to him. And if you have people in your life who have run from God, be assured that God hasn't given up on them. And can I say as an aside, one of the big challenges for any sort of any church these days that does have uh, families and young people, and sadly many don't, but if you do, is that there will be a percentage of people who are living with the grief of their own children having given up the faith. Uh, and that's a very real, palpable, personal issue for many people, and it's one that you need to find ways to address one way or another. Uh, if you are unsure about your own mission, ministry, direction, that can be, then, then be assured that God will make that clear. And if you're in ministry long term, you'll know what that experience again and again, because like Andrew said, you'll have that experience again and again. And that's one of the great joys of being in Christian leadership and ministry. Well, uh, again and again, I think that's the end. Sorry, I've, I've run out of stuff there. But uh, so God will make it clear. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I had another point. What a terrible way to finish. Uh, but anyway, so if you're running from God, uh, then he will be pursuing. I think that's one of the key sort of ideas that we see here in Jonah. Uh, and God's grace is such that he will be seeking to bring you back to him or back to his mission. Amen.